Do you ever wonder what happened to your friends from high school? I mean, you were so close. You laughed together, you cried together, you shared some of the best years of your lives together. And yet, somehow through life, you just lost touch. Now it's time to relive those moments once again. Introducing the podcast that takes you back in time to the place where it all began. This is Class Reunion. We're bringing you all the gossip, secrets, and scandals from your high school days that you won't want to miss. Join us as we catch up with old classmates and dive into the wildest stories from our high school days. From those legendary parties to the infamous cliques, we're spilling all the tea on who's who and what really went down. So grab a seat, turn your volume up, and get ready for a trip down memory lane. Class Reunion, the podcast that reunites us all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Class Reunion. I have with me today what I call our class historian, Henry Ho. He has been somebody that in our high school has kept track of everybody through a plethora of photos from the 80s all the way through several years of, of our classmates. And so we rely on Henry to go back to the archives and and help us remember the good old days at Groves Wiley E High School. So welcome, Henry. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me on, Leanne. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I talked about you being the historian. Now, fun fact, though, I want all the listeners to hang on till the end because I'm holding on to a little secret story that blew me away that I did not know about Henry. So you're just going to have to listen to us chat and and laugh for the next 30 minutes until you hear his story because it's very, very cool. But I love, from a personal standpoint, you know, we're planning our 40th class reunion this year. And it seems like if there's anyone who knows from 80 to 86, is it even? I don't even know. I mean, I know you were 85, but you you have photos from several years at Groves. And I want to know how you obtained all of that. Um, I joined the yearbook and I, I started as a photographer and eventually made my way up and became, you know, editor of the, the, my senior year yearbook. Yeah. But we, I took a lot of photos. And so I'd go out and, you know, my head assignments, you know, as a photographer, go take pictures of, you know, the football we practice, go take, you know, go to the game, take some pictures. And so I did that. And, and we had basically as much film, you know, back then it's, it's hard to imagine the days of film cameras, but like people don't have a lot of photos because it was such a pain right. to not to take photos back then. But because I was in your yearbook and because I took photography also, you know, we had access to a lot of film and you know color film. And then I actually worked in a photo lab during my summer's summer job. Was this like and a tally so, hall or somewhere like that? Or actually it was photo fast in downtown Birmingham. Oh, yes. Right? And, you know, I, I'd see like Grove's parents there too. It was actually, was really a lot of fun working there. And so, so I worked at a photo lab. I had, I could buy film for a discount. You know, I could take pictures, you know, we had access to film for yearbook. I took thousands and thousands of photos. You did. Yeah. And when you think about it, like who does that? Like, right. I mean, I did that, but like today kids are doing that every day, every moment of every day almost. And they have an archive, but we don't have that same level of access to photographs. Right. And so, you know, at the end of every year in the, in the yearbook, they would, all that stuff was getting tossed otherwise. So yeah. I, I grabbed a bunch of it. Like I grabbed all the photos I took, and, you know, and, and I had classmates and friends through the years, like Kelly Como was a photographer mm -hmm. and he was kind enough to send me all his photos and negatives that he took when he was in high school. And I had all those scanned too. And so, uh, because I knew a bunch of the photo yearbook photographers and stuff, you know, and had a lot of my own photos, I was able to accumulate 
a, a pretty good library of photos. And and I posted most of those on my Facebook page. I did that some time ago. I know, but it was right, Henry, when Facebook, at least for a lot of us, was taking off and more of us mm-hmm. were joining. I think I want to say like 07 or 08 or something like that, because I remember that very, very well. And that just got everybody connected even more so. So that was just such a cool thing that you did to connect all different grades at Groves. It was really neat. And I just want to go back and say, yes, you scanned these. Well, I didn't actually. I sent them out to a server. But still, like, think of how it's evolved. Like, it wasn't a little chip that you put in your... You have thousands of photos that you... That's even sweeter that you did it, that you sent out to have scanned. How lucky are we? I mean, it's very cool. Yeah. And I've got like a lot more photos that, you know, because when you're in your book, right? And you yeah. take, like, you know, you go take a photo of, of the game, but you take a couple rolls of photos and right. you tried to pick just the best ones. Right. And it didn't all come out good. <laughs> so, yeah. but you know, there's, there's like every photo I posted, there's a dozen or two dozen more that I haven't posted. Yes, yeah. I know. And, and because, yeah, there, you're only having a few that make it into the yearbook, but which by the way, my senior yearbooks right behind me on the table. I'm using religiously for this reunion. Did you have a teacher? You talked about photography. Did you have a teacher that was influential in that? Because did you have a love of photography or you just fell into it as an extracurricular probably? I know you're very outgoing and even in college, you were this kind of person that brought people together. But Well, yeah, I mean, my, my father had a camera and I was taking pictures, you know, before photography. So I kind of loved it, but it's it's not it wasn't quite the same. I mean, once you have things to take pictures of, right? You know, and people and the school and all that things going on in the school, it was it was kind of different. And then Mrs. Rafalski, the yearbook and journalism teacher, mm-hmm. I mean, she was great. She really, you know, I, I was actually a really shy, awkward kid. I probably am still awkward today, <laughs> but you know, like I didn't really know how to talk to adults or girls or anything like that. Um, but you know, being a photographer helped me break out of that shell or at least have an excuse. Right. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And so, um, so Mrs. Rafalski definitely had a, a big impact. I, actually, a lot of the teachers at Groves, Mr. Klein, I think in particular as well. Yes. Um, but, but a lot of teachers that, you know, Groves had, had, it was really a terrific school and just, mm-hmm. you know, having gone to, you know, you know, uh, college and then, uh, and then, you know, my kids are in college and, 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 I, and we are in a good school system. But the teachers, you know, we have a lot, you know, there are a lot of good things, but sometimes it's not all good. But I don't remember Groves being a place like it was very good. The teachers were all the teachers that I can remember were excellent. And I look back and I think about we caught a lot of them because several of them are still on Facebook. We caught a lot of them in their early career. And they were energetic and, and well, not everybody was, I think of my, my friend, Mrs. Kennedy, but you know, most of them were very young when you think yeah. about it. And they treated us so well and had us think outside the box a lot. And that's not very common now because we're going to talk about like the difference with, with your kids now and mine. It's such a state curriculum. And so that freedom to just go off the beaten path or maybe change the curriculum mid, mid semester, that right isn't given to any of the teachers now. It's all like you have to take the state exam to pass for the next grade and I have to cover X, Y, and Z and I can't veer from that. Yeah. I mean, I think I feel like that's the case now too. You know, we have a lot of the teachers not teaching to the test, but the covering the material that, that they're going to, students are going to be tested on because yeah. ultimately a lot of things, you know, funding and a lot of things get tied into 
the the, the performance of their classes yeah. in these exams. Yeah. So I do feel it. It feels more exam driven today. Yeah. And then it felt. I mean, it's hard to know. Like I wasn't really paying attention to a lot of things. <laughs> I so I have to ask this as a, as just an open question out of curiosity, and I've asked it to a few people of different nationalities. Did you ever get a sense? that you were in a school of like predominantly white kids. I just didn't think about it back then, but I'm not in your shoes. So it had to seem a little odd. Yeah. You know, I, I, I did. I don't think I really noticed the, the way that way. I mean, yes, in some cases, because sometimes people would make, you know, racial. They uh, did. Yeah. What I mean, are I their names? Gross. We're riding at dawn. You know, I, I don't know if it was gross kids necessarily, but like, you know, sometimes it was because I was Asian or right? Birmingham or the whole yeah. county, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and the, and the slanty eyes thing, you know, I can't, I, I do remember, I don't remember who, but I remember people with like kids would do that thing. And it, it, you know, I don't know if I felt hurt or I don't know what it was. It was just like, you know, no one likes to be made fun of. Yes. And it was just another thing. If you're overweight, if you're yeah. all sorts of things, we all had those insecurities. But I often ask because as diverse as Oakland County was and is, has continued to be since I left, it's it's much more diverse. I look back at some of my friends that I've interviewed and I realize, oh, you were the one African-American in the class or you were the one, you know, and so I was like, I guess I step back now and go, wow, back then that had to have been different. You know, yeah, I don't know how aware, you know, kids are much more aware of these types of things now, I think. But right. like back then, was I really aware? I mean, I probably at some level, you know, had some awareness, but it was just another kid trying to get by mm -hmm. playing with the kids on the block, you know, and now come to think of it, right? Like, you're right. Like on, on our street, I don't remember any other person of, of, you know, any, any, anyone else on our street except, you know, white kids, right? You know, no minorities except me. And you, family. what was your, what was your area again? I, well, I grew up on Shoreham. Oh, that's right. Okay. Right around the corner from Groves. And then we moved, when I went to Groves, we moved up to like Corn and Inkster. Okay. So, and then by that time, you know, you know, that Bernadine who was living in our subdivision. Mm -hmm. So at least some other Asian families, but for the most part, it was still white. I don't remember many other people of color. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that it didn't give a significant negative impact to you. Yeah, I don't think it. I don't think it did. I mean, every kid gets gets teased about right. something or another, and I right. never felt it was that that much about my race. Yeah, that's excellent. You also were musically inclined as well, so you were in orchestra in high school, correct? Or, or... I was one of the two people in my grade, I think, in in the orchestra. You know, the string orchestra. Anyway. Um, but yeah, no, I, I always loved music. I, um, and I still love music, but, but I really enjoyed orchestra and Mr. Wade was a conductor. I hear he passed away recently. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but you know, it, it, that helped. And, and actually one thing I really liked about orchestra was that you're in, in class with people of all different grades. It wasn't just like, people right. in your grade. And that was really fun actually to meet people and to hang out with, you know, older or younger you know, students. That's how I remember, like people say, how did you know that person? Well, I know uh, upper class and lower class because they were either in the same sports or plays or music. So you definitely, I definitely knew who Henry was. Let's talk about the funny part of going to college. So Henry and I talked about <laughs> applying for college and how 
like on our own, we were to do this huge endeavor that was going to shape the next four years of our lives. And you said you applied to two colleges, correct? That's right. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. I, I look back and it's like shocking today that, that like that doesn't happen now, probably. I did three. That's it. And I did only three because one I didn't get into. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it was, you really didn't hear about the angst of, um, you either got a big packet in the mail or a little envelope saying, thank you for applying. And you went to the mailbox to look for that big welcome packet. And that was how we found out. Yeah. No email. No, no, nothing else. But no. that was, it was what it was. No, um, no, um, TikTok or, or Instagram to right. show like you're all families <laughs> gathered around. I don't even think my parents knew what colleges I even applied to at the time. But in contrast, let's talk about, so you have, you have your kids and you have to do more than one. You have to be on top of your game. You have to have connections and, and talk about how you even, now have counselors outside of the school that help you get into certain schools. I found that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we we have, we have I have three kids. They're all in college now, but we had college counselors for all of them, mostly because we'd heard that other parents were hiring college counselors. So we're <laughs> like, huh, it sounds like a good idea because you know, if you ask your kid to do something, are they going to listen to you? Yeah, you know, and but you know, and and then we'd have to follow all the deadlines and you know, know when the SATs were, which is just this extra layer of you know. You know, if if you have a busy job, it's like, how can you keep track of all that stuff? And so we just thought it was a good idea. You know, we talked to some other parents. They're like, oh, here's so-and-so. And we we hired our friends, counselors and and whatnot. And it was great because they kept your kids on track with all the schedules. They they knew more details about it, right? Yeah. You know, I knew some stuff like, okay, on a multiple choice quiz on the SAT. Actually, I don't even remember the details. Should you answer every question or should you, you know, should you guess at the questions you don't know about? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember all that stuff now. No. And, you know, and and the counselors can can give you kind of at least some level of advice about that. And certainly about like, actually, one of them, one of the counselors said, you should take this SAT because this SAT, you can actually request your answers and you can then look at and the test and you can look at how you did. And I think that's only one a year. And I didn't know that. Oh, my and gosh. So, you know, and then you can figure out like where you had weaknesses. And if you then want to take it again, you know what we should focus on. So other than just getting a score, and I, I had no idea our college counselor knew, and that's exactly what, what we did. I'm not sure exactly what the process was, but it was the special SAT once a year. Henry, I had mono when I took no. my <laughs> at oh, ACT no. or SAT. I can't remember which one. And I remember my mom's like, oh, Leanne, you know, you should retake that because you had mono. And I said, okay. And I, <laughs> I had a worse score. I did better okay. when I had mono. I submitted my test scores from when I had mono, not when I was recovered, because apparently no. I lost a few brain cells. But isn't that weird? I, I did worse the second time. Well, you're probably trying extra hard. Yes. You know, you're sick, you know, and you're, you're working extra hard to overcome that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So three kids, we talked about how the, the beauty of having three different children and you moved, we're, we're going to get to college, but we're going to go to, to Massachusetts, your current day real quick. You chose that because of college, which we're going to discuss, but you carried on the musical inclination to be in three different orchestras today or, or what are you involved in? I look at Facebook and I'm astounded by all the things that you're involved in. Oh, it's fun. I, and I play, um, I play viola now in most orchestras or violin, which I played in 
growing up. But I do play in actually five different orchestras over the year, but three during the during the school year. That's um, incredible. Well, part of it was me being over eager after my youngest daughter, like we became empty nesters, right? Okay. Kind of agreeing to, you know, sub in or, you know, play in an orchestra. And then I really liked it. I liked the conductor. I liked the music. So I kind of said, well, can I play as a regular next year? You know, and that happened to two different orchestras. That's why I'm in three now. <laughs> because in the spring earlier this year, you know, oh, we need it. We need some violas. Can you play? And so I'm like, sure, I'll play this concert. And then then I'm like, oh, wow. Well, I like what you're playing and I like what you have next year. So can I play? <laughs> so yeah, so I'm in, in the River Symphony Orchestra, the Reading Symphony Orchestra, and the Carlisle Chamber Orchestra during the school year. And I play in the Firebird Pops Orchestra, which is a summer, uh, fall, winter thing. And then the MIT Summer Philharmonic, which is just during the summer. And I love I love pops music. Actually, two of my orchestras do one pops concert a year, and then the other orchestra, the Firebird Pops, is all pops. Yeah. And I love Broadway. I love show tunes. I love movie music. It's all really terrific. And I love music generally, but like we'll play songs from Wicked. We played the James Bond theme. You oh, know. very it, cool. It's, it's really fun music, and that's music that people know and enjoy. That's beautiful. My son actually played viola through school, and I remember. This was when I thought he was going to be a genius. They said that a viola is is not common. And so the, they crave those scholarships because a lot of people are, are violin, cello, and viola is a unique sound. It's hard to describe it to people. But I loved when he would play. Of course, he he dropped out of it. But I, I thought that was the I, – I learned all about viola when he started to take it. It was beautiful. Yeah, and it is a mu instrument because violin's a sexy uh, string instrument. Because right. There's all this great repertoire, solos, all this stuff written for violin, and not so much. There's some, but not so much written for viola. And in fact, the butt of the, all jokes in an orchestra are the violists. Like you find any musical Aww. joke, the violist. <laughs> so yeah. I actually find them funny. And but but the but the the joke is that you know violas are failed violinists. Kind of. <laughs> And so no one plays viola. Rude. Um, on the flip side, like every orchestra almost always needs a viola. Sure. And then uh, while I sit here and talk about his accolades, he's also brilliant in the engineering world. And um, do you want to talk about the business that you founded? I realize you, you've sold it since then, but like you did start this business as well. I mean, we could be here all day talking about all the great things Henry has, has done in his life. But I do want to talk about that as well, because that's very, very cool. So I started a kids um, education business in science, technology, and engineering, arts, and math. So it was called Einstein's Workshop. And I started about 12 or 13 years ago. It grew out of a robotics team that I started for my, my, when my son, who's now 24 almost, was when he was a fourth grader. That grew from, I think, 12 kids the first year. We just sent one email to kind of the school and all these kids wanted to be on it. So we had two robotics teams. It grew to, I don't remember, was it 80 the next year? And then it grew to 120, 130. And we added an, a program for younger kids that added another 80, 80 kids. That's so in the, in the third year, we had over 200 kids doing these robotics programs. It was part of the first robotics um, program, which is um, a, a worldwide program, actually, that has robotics competitions. So we really just glommed onto what was already there. It wasn't like I created that. But, you know, the kids and parents were, were so excited by the fact that they had access to these programs. Mm -hmm, they kept mm -hmm. asking, like, what do we do next? What do we do next? And I'm like, you know, I was running it during the fall on a you know volunteer basis with another friend who was also a dad with a kid in the program. And it was like, oh, 
yeah, come back next year because we were burned out after, <laughs> yeah. after the program. But then I was like, huh, I wonder, you know, I think it's something that like, it's just not available in many places to have, you know, robotics engineering program, programming classes available for young kids. And so I was like, well, maybe I can start a business around this. And I did. And I went and, and rented a 7,000 square foot facility, you know, and we had um, six classrooms and a big open space birthday party room, you know, several computer labs were part of those classrooms. And we started teaching programming, robotics, Lego, Minecraft. Actually, we started having Minecraft classes, which were very, very popular. Really, if Minecraft weren't around, our shop would have not be what it is. But we were probably one of the first kind of places like that to offer kids and teach them about Minecraft and and not just play, but like we try to come up with, you know, ed educational things they could do in Minecraft. Which is um, when you say kids, I mean, you also are opening up this world to to little girls as well. Not that, you know, it's not just all boys do this, but you really <clears throat> opened it to everybody to enjoy. And and that I'm, I'm, I was always in, like I mentioned to you earlier with the software world with the STEM programs and things, yeah. just women weren't in software like I was when I first started. So you really opened doors for these young girls, too. We tried, you know, so the robotics teams, though, unfortunately, it was mostly boys, mm -hmm, you know, 80% like mm -hmm. boys. Um, but what we did was we actually started um, when, when the 3D printers started becoming popular. Yeah, we actually started offering classes and actually we wrote our own software for creating 3D models. And it's called BlocksCAD. It's still out there. You can go to BlocksCAD3D.com and, and, and use it for free. But we started, we created that and we started teaching classes and we found in those classes, the, the mix was actually um, sometimes more girls than boys. And, um, you know, it, it, and it helped really encourage the desire to, to learn more math because it's a, it's a program. It's like Scratch. I don't know if you know about the Scratch programming language, mm -hmm. but it's got a very similar interface, but you, you kind of have to program your, your shapes. So if you want to say, make a snowman, which is one of our introductory exercises, you have to know, oh, it, it's three spheres of different diameter. Mm -hmm. And then some are higher in space than others. So you have to know how high you should take the head and move it up because you have to tell it using this programming tool, you know, how to how high to translate the head in the Z direction, because that, you know, Z is kind of up and then how high to translate the, the mid part of the body. And, you know, if you want to put buttons or a nose or a hat, you have to know what shapes those are and program those in. And so it was a way to teach programming and math at, at the same time and encourage kids who might not otherwise respond to other ways of, of doing math instruction mm -hmm. to actually build a desire to like learn the math so they can build in this program the, the shape or the, the object they want to build, like a Pokemon thing or a Star Wars thing or, you know, a better snowman or anything they can think of. And, so and, cool. and then we can print it for them right on a 3d printer and then they can hold the thing that they designed and you so, don't need snow <laughs> you can build a snowman anywhere that's really cool i mean i know you can build a house but like that's very very cool because we've talked about this too the way in which learning has changed based on adhd or people on the spectrum or whatever all of a sudden this visual tactical oral type of teaching model has come to light where you know Teachers now are aware that kids learn in different ways. We were just flatlined. We were just, you know, you had to be at a certain 
level of understanding for each grade without realizing that the classroom has 35 different individuals, right? And that's what's really cool about what you're doing because it's it's very visual, hands-on. They can see the end result and, and that's very cool. You have since sold the business, but it still is around, correct? It's still around. Yeah. I actually, the woman who bought it was who, a woman who helped me start the business. So she was kind of like the co-founder. Yeah. And she left for a while and then she wanted to come back with her daughter. And this is a fun story where her daughter started in the program that I helped set up when she was a kindergartner. Oh. And when she graduated from high school, she, this is when she approached me. They wanted to run the business together as a mother daughter business. And see, this is what I'm, look what you did do for women. This is great. Yeah, I know. We always were trying to, to encourage young girls, you know, in STEM. Yeah. Now, when you talk about engineering or the IT side of things as well, you have a current day job that is incredibly intriguing to me because I told you I sold software, but when you said to me one day, I can't meet because I'm going to be in a deposition. And I thought, somebody is suing Henry. And I was like, do I ask? I don't know what, what, what's going on. Cause I thought he was in orchestra. So, <laughs> so explain how you are an asset to the, the world of law for, for companies. Well, I don't know about it, if it's an asset really, but like, so my job today is, is, uh, it's called being, I'm an expert witness. And what that entails is it's a very specific area. So when two companies sue each other, it's over patent infringement. You know, the patents are very specific and they're in a particular technology. So both sides, the attorneys for both sides hire experts in the field of those, that technology area. So if it's a, if it's a lawsuit about, mobile phone user interfaces, or if it's a, if it's a lawsuit about, you know, or a patent about video streaming, you know, then the, the lawyers are going to have to go and find someone who's been in the field of video streaming or, you know, user interfaces for mobile devices, or, you know, also whatever the topic areas and the patents are in a, you know, huge variety of areas. There's over 10 million patents patents now in, they cover lots of different technology areas. But so the two companies sue each other, it's about like video streaming. And then they have to go find someone who who knows about video streaming and has worked in it. And and so so happened when I went to grad school, I actually helped set up some of the earliest video streaming demos. Might might have been the first video available on the web back around 1993, 1994 timeframe. You could actually turn on a camera, like go to the website that I helped set up and turn on video in my office and watch me sitting in my office, kind of, you know, working at my computer or, you know, whatever I'm doing. And because of that, now I, I am pulled into a lot of patent lawsuits that involve video streaming for, and because I have a background in that area. And so our job is, you know, there's a patent, there's someone saying, this is my patent. I'm suing you on it because you, you are using what is in my patent. And so I could write, now, I could be on the plaintiff side and I could write, here is why I think they're using the patent owner's pen. I might be on the other side and I'd say, well, uh, and it'd be to rebut their allegations. And I might be on the other side and it'd be, here's why your patent's invalid. And there are reasons that a patent might be invalid. Like someone else actually did it before you and the patent office just didn't happen to notice that or, or find the reference that showed um, how it would be obvious that the patent, how obvious the patent was at the time and that should never have been issued. So the technical experts in the field in, in, on both sides are writing these reports about that. And they, you know, and it's a battle of kind of facts and we get deposed on them. You know, I write a report, then the other side has the right to depose me about what I said and ask me questions. And so I have been in 
over a hundred de depositions. I don't even know how crazy, many now. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and so fortunately it's not because I've gotten sued over a hundred times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Clarify. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm working, uh, you know, for either, you know, a, a, a defendant that ha has gotten sued or, you know, the other way around, I'm working for the plaintiff, the patent owner or plaintiff. But I just want to say kudos to you because streaming is part of our vocabulary. And here you are, the, the founder, you know, part of that whole founding process. Very, very cool. Like, I think young people probably take it for granted of where did it all begin? Well, let me introduce you to Henry Ho. Like, I, I mean, that's crazy that that was back then. Yeah, I, we don't claim to have, like, a lot of people had the idea and they were working on it and had demos in the lab and things like that. But we, I think we were the first to take our demos and integrate them with the website. In fact, I think the, that website I helped set up might have been one of the first hundred or a couple hundred websites ever. I mean, take it. Yeah, run with it. And so we, we, you know, other people might, there was another group that had like, you could, some sort of Coke cam or like a vending machine that you could like see a picture of. You know, and, and so there were thing, little things like that, but we we're like, hey, we have video demos. Let's let people watch our video demos and watch our live cameras. And so that's that's what we did. So much has changed. That's what I think is so impressive. You were right yeah. on the the cusp of all that early technology. That's so cool. It was a lot of fun to be at a place like MIT yeah. during that time because we were. You know, Mark Andreessen came because it was MIT yeah. and he gave us up there. And we were one of the earliest people to hear about about the you know mosaic and whatever he was doing right at yeah all of your your touch points at that school had to have been people in the know that later on in life you had to go back and go wow i can't believe i met this person so massachusetts institute of technology we were talking about applying for college you just asked your dad hey do you think this is a a good school to apply to <laughs> i still think that's hilarious that's right I remember just getting, and you probably remember too, like getting loads of mail from different colleges. Yes. You know, mine were all community colleges, but yes, I got them. No. You know, I'd look through them and the one from MIT looked pretty cool. I had no idea what MIT Yeah, was. because it's Massachusetts. <laughs> had you even been there? No, no. And I never even went to visit before I went to school there. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I looked at it and it was a pretty cool looking brochure. So I think I asked my dad, huh, is MIT a good school? And he's like, yeah. It's a great school. I didn't know other than what I saw and it looked fun. And yeah. Maybe it looked like my people. Like, the, right. you know, I was, I was kind of very geeky and nerdy. Yeah. And, you know, well, I should say yes, I, but you, you were smart right. was what you were. And, yeah. And I liked what I saw in the brochure. I don't even remember what was in it, but I liked what I saw. And, and I asked my dad and he said, yeah, it's a good school. And like, should I apply there? He's like, sure. Why not? You know? And, you know, I remember my college, uh, high school counselor, he said, don't apply there. You'll never get in. I know. You know? We talked about that. Yeah. I think it's Peter Del Favreau for those. Yeah. I don't remember, but like, I, you yeah. know, I applied to U of M. That was only my other school. Yeah. Which is crazy. And, and talk about too, you were a good student, but we were talking about, you know, applications now you have to be a beyond a four point. I don't even know what the upper skill is 5.7 or whatever. You have to be all AP advanced classes. I had a, a friend whose daughter was, she got a middle school award. She was president of the class in high school. She she had all these awards, excellent grade point average, N nothing. She couldn't get into anything. It's just, it's crazy. All the extra things you need on top of just good grades. Yeah. It's a real challenge and it's really tough for kids these days. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, I think back and like, who knows if I'd ever be able to get into, you know, the schools that I got into today. 
But, and you know, the other thing is, of course, because the kids are applying to four times or more schools than, than we used to, yeah. admit rates have dropped by that equivalent factor. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and now it makes it much crazier. Like some of these schools have like a 5% admit rate. I know. You know. I don't know how I don't know how to fix that issue, but it, it is an issue. But talking about being shy and and you know not being able to talk to girls, it's funny because you were had all the photos. You said you were very involved in MIT, still, and and was with all of your classmates. And you meet this beautiful wife of yours, so you did have game later on in life. <laughs> I was like, it was just my, it was my office mate's girlfriend's friend. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, it's the old way of meeting people through your friends, I guess, right? Yeah. And so I was lucky to have that happen. Yes, yes, and three beautiful children. So you you go on to this career in college, and as I was talking to Henry, I was mentioning all these things, and I said, Henry, I can't believe you've done this and you've done that, and it's just such a well rounded portfolio. And then Henry said, Yeah, but I, I should probably mention one that other little thing that I did. I don't know if you are familiar with it, and he proceeds to tell me what he did at MIT, and let's talk about your movie role first and then why you got the the role. So he's been in a film called 21 and I have to read this cast because of course I watched the movie 21. I knew what he was talking about right away. It's a it's a card counting game. Kevin Spacey, Kate Bosworth, uh Jeff Ma, Josh Gad, Lawrence Fishburne. I mean it, 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 he has the cast is 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 crazy large and great and it's a real cool thriller behind the scenes of casinos and card counting um, with blackjack and things like that. So you get this opportunity to try out for a role in this film and it ends up being the classic line of the movie 21. So talk about um, your role and then the backstory on how you got that. So I play in that movie, a dealer in a Chinatown casino. Yes. So, you know, 30, 30 minutes in for anybody that wants to rent it. It's 30 minutes in. And it's where the star comes to play blackjack. Um, he's getting tested. And when he hits a blackjack at my table, I deal to him. I, I yell, winner, winner, chicken dinner. And that's my line. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Winner, winner, chicken Everybody in America across the country knows winner, winner, chicken dinner. And Henry Ho delivered that line. And I have to say it was fantastic writing by the movie writers because, you know, the, there's a backstory that like, you know, supposedly that was like used in Vegas. But like, of so, all right. So the, the real backstory is I played on that team the movie was about. <laughs> I, I was at MIT. I I. I Kind of did that. And of course, the movie. Kind of. You did it. You were on the team. The movie made everything more dramatic and glamorous. But I did participate in the actual team that was going at MIT. I stop right there. That is the coolest thing ever. I can't even believe you did that. I mean, it's impressive. It's not illegal, by the way, people. I mean, it, it is when you get caught excessive amounts and things like that. But the act of it of knowledge of counting cards is not an illegal practice. It's just when you try to turn a table for profit and stay there and make money, right? Well, um, actually, none of that is actually illegal either. Like, so you're, you're just using your brain. We're, we're counting, we are counting the cards, but not, we're not remembering every card we saw. 
But um, there's a very specific system we use, which was known at the time. It wasn't like we made it up. Okay. Um, and and then the team play, like we did team play like they did in the movie, which is, you know, people would be sitting at tables. And I did that most often, which is I'd sit yeah. there. And when the cards got good, I'd make a signal and have a big player sit down at the table so he could bet it up. What was the now, signal? I, I we, saw the I, hands behind the back was in the movie. Yeah, that 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 may have been similar to the signal. Those words that they used in the movie, like um, those were actual the, the same words we we would use in a conversation to try to pass the um, the count to the other player that just sat there. Okay. In, in the movie, I think it's seventeen, and or it's hey Henry. The, the other they player, did say hey hey Henry. Yeah. It's hey Henry. Uh, I read a you know. Did I tell you I read about this place in the magazine or something? Like yes, that? it was. That was at the Chinatown Casino because I was like, "Whoa, they're using Henry's name right in the movie too." Yeah. yeah, which wasn't in the script, by the way. The actor, you know, I was talking to the actor beforehand, and he just threw that in there. So um, anyway, so magazine is seventeen because seventeen magazine. So if I were to use the word, you know, magazine, so that's why I use the word magazine. And we had this whole system of how to pass the count. We had both signals, like putting your hands here, like this. This would be, I don't know if you see that. Yes, I can. 19, yeah. right? Oh, but, that was an uh, actual number. Okay. That was an actual number because I have four and it's, you know, uh, zero. on the arm I am. And so the problem with that is that that can be picked up by the video. So if they watch these videos. I was thinking that's kind of obvious even for someone like me who doesn't do math, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you oh. know, we might put our hands like this or, you yeah, know, yeah. you know, this is a little weird, like two fingers. Yeah, like right, a, right. So we wanted something not so obvious and and also captured on the cameras. Yes. Right? So we made up these words, you know, like if we talk, I had this great omelet for breakfast, omelet, eggs, eggs is a dozen, 12, you know, so we have these keywords that we could use in, you know, table banter. Of course, it's it kind of fun. Yeah. And so we have all these words we could just use in sentences. And that's how we told the person sitting down that that's what the count was. Yeah. So they could make an appropriate bet. And, and so, I can't remember if it was hair is touching your hair or your eye. One of them was get out now. So well, did you have a get out now? Yeah, this is get out now. Okay. I, I got that signal before. <gasps> but, but, you know, so, so there were, there were signals like that. You know, you, you couldn't obviously say like get out now. Right. right. So you, you want to, and in, by the way, you also didn't want to show that you knew all these other people who were around the casino. Right. The right. Right. So you, you, you I'm just so itching my eye, by the way. <laughs> just had no intention. Get off the podcast now. Yeah. yeah. And you talked about, I just found this so cool, y'all. I had no idea. I know some people at Groves know you may have been in the film, but I had no idea. I already loved everything that you had accomplished. But when you threw that in, the curveball in my mind was like, it was such a favorite movie of mine, but you would have like bags of cash. We, 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 we did because it's, it's kind of a cash business. And so, yeah. I mean, there was a time where I'd have, you know, a, a bag of chips that were worth, you know, $100,000 or so. And, you know, because, you know, if someone went to a casino and you were playing and they had all this cash and you know someone's going to go back to the casino the next week and you just keep those chips and you give it to someone else. You give it to the next person, right? I'd be paranoid. We were. I was. I was. It, it's very... Um, and thrilling at the same time. I mean, gambling's a thrill, which is why many people are addicted. It's a whole, can you beat the, yeah. yeah. And I don't think I ever got over the nervousness of carrying around large amounts of money. And ultimately, it's it's kind of why I stopped playing. Okay. How many because how many years did you play? I played probably a year, 
Oh, most. okay. Okay. You know, I wasn't playing for that long, but okay. like a lot of times you can't, you actually don't have a long life because once the casino spots you yeah. and you become part of their database, you're, it's very hard to play again. You know, unless you have some like way you can dress up or, you know, change your appearance or something. Like and that. I'm sure it goes to all the casinos, right? So it's not just yeah. an MGM or, a, you know, it goes into Vegas database, I'm sure. Yeah, there was a detective agency that tracked this called Griffin. And and so okay. if you got if your name got into Griffin, all the casinos that subscribe to this detective agency's, you know, book would get the information. Okay. And sometimes you'd get there and, and they'd see you at one casino. Right. And they'd call a bunch of other casinos all, all down the strip saying, you know, so-and-so's here, look out for them. You know, because it's it's usually the ones that are co-owned by the same company. Yeah. There's a bunch, you know. And so um, so if once you got found out, it, it became very hard to play. Yeah. Um, and so so a lot of the players' lives weren't that actually that long. My office mate who started this, he he had multiple lives. And he, um, you know, there's a there's a book about the team, and there's a second book about the team by the same author, Ben Mesrick. The second book is all about my office mate. And he, if you, if what's you the get name that, of that? Uh, I forget the name. I forget the name of the second book. I'll, I'll look it, it up and 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 link it. That's cool. But the inside covers of of the book are all, you know, are 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 actually the, the actual IDs that my my office mate used when he was gambling, right? And so, so. Uh, so, Just a fascinating, I mean, you have all these other things that are very unique, but the skill level, everything involved, very cool. So naturally, when you decided, you know, you, you didn't, a the, the lot of the players didn't get any compensation once the main guy decided to trade secrets for less jail time or whatever that person was experiencing. He, he sold the rights to the story, correct, or something? And Yeah, that was actually Jeff Ma, who was also in the movie. Oh, okay, yeah. He met an author at a, at a party, and he told him the story. And this this one story was the beginning of this author's career. It's Ben Mesrick, and he's since made movies mm -hmm. like he wrote the movie, I think, The Social Network. Oh, yeah. The, the most recent movie, Dumb Money, he wrote the book, and, and you know, he... He's got a niche. That's that's yeah. He's very good. Yeah, but it all started with this story, and so he Jeff mom met Ben. Jeff met Ben at this party, mm -hmm. and you know Jeff told him the story, and he he was an aspiring writer, so he wrote up an article for Wired magazine. Oh yeah, which was a huge hit, and you know, and based on that, he turned it into a book, and it got turned into a movie, and that and that really was the beginning of 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 Ben. I think really the beginning of Ben's you know stellar career as a, as a writer, but. You you sought an opportunity again, still thinking like an MIT uh, aficionado, and said, "Okay, I wasn't the guy who cashed in on the main storyline, but I'm going to get in this movie, <laughs> so I can at least make a little bit of money from playing a character." And you audition. Yeah, the, so the movie happened to be filmed right here in the Boston area. Yeah, I had a friend I worked with as an engineer. He was also an actor, uh -huh. and he he would get casting calls, and he told me one because he knew I played on the teams. Yeah, like. This was years later, so a lot of people yeah. eventually knew I played. Yeah, and he knew I played, so he forwarded me the casting call. And the casting call was literally for I think it said, you know, Asian uh, casino dealer, right? You know, middle aged Asian casino dealer. And I read down like, or blackjack dealer, and I like winner winner, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> because you know we we practiced so much and we were in casinos so much that we could all deal just the way a casino professional casino dealer could deal blackjack mm -hmm. right and we have all the banter we knew all the banter we knew all the the, the style you know all the little things that the, the dealers do so i could i could deal so i went to the audition and i you know i told the casting director you know who's auditioning me that i was on the team 
and you know and i could actually deal like a, a real you know fluidly like a real dealer could and so they hired me for it and i was really thrilled and there was actually an, an, another friend that i made later who actually also auditioned for that but he never dealed had never had dealt blackjack before and you know he's he started you know practicing a few days before but you can tell someone who's been dealing you know two days versus yeah. you, know, you know a long time and so but so i got the role he got the role as, a, as a, an extra in the movie uh but then he he actually went on to get lots of roles in lots of movies so he's an engineer also and uh and an actor and and he's making movies now but but so i got the role and and actually if you watch the director's cut of the movie they actually mentioned that that I was on the team during during my scene. Oh, they do. Okay, I've, I've got to look for that too. Because I was like, yeah. listen, if there's any credentials aside from the fact that you knew what you were doing with the cards, you were on the darn team. I mean, of course, right. of course, they're going to hire. And then to deliver the classic line, it's just a very cool story. A very cool yeah. story. Yeah, and as I said earlier, that line really was really made up. Even though there was a backstory about the line that it was used in Vegas, yeah. none of us who played in Vegas ever heard that line while we were playing. Right? Yeah. So. I think they they made it up the right brilliant writing right you know into movies you know sports broadcasters say it like everyone like has probably heard that at some point yes and so i still i get emails from people like hey i was in the bar and these guys were saying winner winner chicken dinner i told <laughs> them the guy that in the movie <laughs> so. you don't think i haven't told everybody that i'm interviewing you that i was like you're not gonna believe this story and i went to school with them yeah yeah <laughs> Well, Henry, I uh, I adore you, and I just have had so much fun. I know that's going to be a lot of fun for our listeners to know a little bit about you. But you know, aside from your mathematician, your musician, your you know engineering, it's it's just been a great, well rounded life that you have led, and I just uh, look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the future. I, I just uh, I've enjoyed talking to you. This has been a great story. So. Um, thank you for all you did at Groves for the photos. We appreciate all the keepsakes. And here's to 21, right? Thank you. And thank you now for what you're doing to kind of, you know, archive all this stuff that we did too. Aw, thanks. Thanks. Well, you're the best. Let's keep in touch. And thank you for listening to Class Reunion. All right, friends. That's it for this episode of Class Reunion Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show, write us a review and share this podcast with a friend. Until next time.